Welcome to the Exchange Podcast by EWL. As advisors to some of the most successful families in the country, Craig Emanuel, Tim Wyburn, and I, Ryan Lure, draw upon some of the best minds in the country. We believe that by exchanging ideas, we can deliver better advice and better outcomes for the families we work for. Now, we're inviting you on this journey. In this podcast, we interview some of the country's best investment managers, business advisors, bankers, and founders to share their valuable insights. And our hope is that with better information comes better decisions, helping you to achieve more financially. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Exchange by Emmanuel Wybon and Lawyer. My name is Tim Wybon, and I'm your host today, where we have the privilege of speaking with market-leading economist David Bassaniti from BetaShares. David is responsible for developing economic insights and portfolio construction strategies for advisor and retail clients. Prior to BetaShares, David was an economic columnist for the Australian Financial Review for over a decade. Prior to the AFR, David spent several years in financial markets as a senior economist and interest rate strategist at Bankers Trust and Macquarie Bank. He started his career as a Commonwealth Treasury official, after which he spent three years as a research economist at the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, in Paris. He graduated with first-class honours from the University of Adelaide and a Master in Public Policy from the JF Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. So it gives me um, great pleasure to be sitting here today with um, David Bassanuzzi or, or on the, the video call today. I've been reading your commentary for 10 years now, so I actually feel like I know you, although this is the first time we've actually spoken. So it uh, really is a great honour to speak with you today and thank you for coming on the podcast. No, great to be with you, Tim. So you've been a, a economist for BD shares for couple of years now. How, how many years has it been at BD Shares? Oh, probably more than a couple. I'd say eight years now. So time flies, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, it's probably up to eight years now. Yeah, right. No, it certainly doesn't feel that long to me, but time does fly. I would love to pick your brain on what your, what your thoughts on markets are, everything today, but I thought it'd be quite interesting to hear a bit about your background, a bit about yourself, where you grew up, where your interest in markets started, and how you ultimately ended up as the chief economist for BD Shares. I came from Adelaide, so I'm originally from Adelaide, Um, uh, you know, developed an early uh, interest and liking of economics way back in high school, you know. Um, um, Funnily enough, I actually accidentally fell into economics because I was doing a double maths at high school and uh, I didn't want to do double maths, I wanted to do a single maths, so I had, there was a spare subject available and I still remember my teacher saying, um, well, there's another class you can take and it's called economics and I remember saying you know what is economics and they said it's about money and I said oh that sounds good so that was you know the rest is history so to speak so that's how I got into it uh I then did it at uni I you know graduated went to treasury for a while in Canberra uh as many people out of Adelaide uh, can do either treasury reserve bank are the two sort of sought after jobs um worked overseas for a little while I came back to Australia uh, I did a degree in the US and I had a bit of debt over my head at that time. So my thoughts moved from being a public sector economist to being a private sector economist and and and, and chasing the money and paying down my debts. And so that got me into financial markets. Um, and, uh, you know, from there I spent a, a stint. I actually worked at Macquarie Bank for a while. Uh, but then a job came up uh, at the AFR where they allowed me to write my own column for for, for a while on global markets. Um, 
I got very interested in that through exchange traded funds. Uh, I actually went to the US and um, had to give a presentation in the US at some investment conference and I discovered all the promoters of, of investment funds were, were running ETFs. And I remember saying, what is an ETF? And um, it got me down the path of um, discovering those. Um, but um, I actually then, I, I wrote a book about ETFs and through that I met uh, the guys at BetaShares and um, yeah, we came to a, an agreement for me to come and work with them and I've been chief economist ever since. Um, uh, and again, I'm a, a macro economist, so it's global macro type of uh, uh, you know looking at markets, which uh, which really lends itself to to ETFs. It's not about stock picking. Um, there's some good stock pickers out there, but that's not the the nature of um, ETFs. So hence why it was a good um, a good fit for me to to move into uh, to the to, to beta shares to an ETF provider. That's a perfect fit. I didn't realise it. You had a special interest in ETFs and obviously the economy, but. I certainly agree that if you can get the economics right or the macro picture right, you've got 91% of the return explained is what we tell our clients. So we're, we're, we're just like you, we're, we're not stock pickers either, kind of outsource the stock selection obviously is important, but if you can get that macro picture right, it's um, it's a far more important discussion and far more interesting discussion also, I think. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever um, pondered coming to the, the dark side and into to asset management, into the the micro and stock selection, or is it um, you've always preferred that high-level approach? In short answer, no. I mean, uh, there was a time where I briefly flirted with the idea of being a, a fund manager um, uh, a, a while, um, you know, um, when I first came back to Sydney, actually, one of the first jobs I was off- offered was working in a funds management business. In my wisdom, I, I went down the economist route. I'm not sure whether that was a good idea or not in the, with hindsight, but um Look, yeah, end of the day, as you say, you know, asset allocation, getting the broad calls on equity markets and bond markets uh, or, or even sectors, you know, technology versus resources, uh, Australia versus US. I mean, these can you can do that now through through um, uh, ETFs or you can, you know, you can obviously pick stocks as well, but you can get a lot of the potential alpha returns, let's say, or market beating returns just by, you know, selecting at that very aggregated level. So um, uh, I think that's where my core skill set is. And uh, I'm happy to sort of stay in that, uh, stay in my, stay in my lane, so to speak. It's certainly been an interesting 20 years to be an economist. We've had some kind of a few one in a hundred year events <laughs> happen over the last 20 years, I feel. You've no doubt learned a lot of lessons al- along the way. You've developed a, a very good reputation in the market as, a, as one of the market leading e- economists in Australia. Do you think you're doing anything special to differentiate yourself from other economists? Is there anything that you know that you're doing differently or is it how do you become a, a market leading economist? <laughs> Again, part of my role at BetaShares is that many economists out there, you know, their bread and butter is to focus on the reserve bank and interest rates. And so they do look at the economy, you know, very closely and, you know, sweat over every RBA meeting. Now, that is part of my job. You know, certainly I, I, I look at the RBA, but it's not the only part of my job. So, you know, I do broad asset allocation, um, uh, you know, uh, advice. Um, so I think that I have, because I have a wider remit, I, I think I, I'm able to speak about a lot more topics. It kind of allows me to, you know, maybe have a bit more of a voice out there uh, uh, in the in the marketplace. So I think that's one differentiation. 
Um, otherwise, I mean, again, I spent uh, many years at the AFR writing a column, so I think I got a bit of a profile, you know, from that. Many people still think I write for the AFR. They're surprised I haven't written. I said, I mean, um, no, I, have, I haven't done that for a while. Um, but look, and what that did give me actually was a, a, a need over time to be able to distill information into concise, you know, bite-sized um, articles, you know, 500, 700 words. Um, and so you you basically have to distill a lot of information and make it, um, you know, understood and palatable uh, while you're, you know, munching on your toast in the morning. Um, so that that was a skill maybe I developed over the years and I've been able to trans transfer that over now to my work at, uh, at Beta Shares, taking in all the information that's going on in markets uh, and just distilling it into what are the key essential moving parts driving things at the moment. Um, you know, distilling the noise from the signal from the noise is, I guess, another you know, terminology that's bandied about. But I think it's an important um, skill for an economist is to be able to distinguish noise from signal, um, which uh, you do get with experience. Well, I think one of the great things about your writing is that you're presenting to an audience that obviously isn't as sophisticated as yourself. So you have to make it relatable to people and in plain English. And I think that's a great skill in, it's, in itself to be able to condense down some very complex topics into something that people can understand. Is technology used in, in your role to build views on, on markets? So as, a, as an example, when the RBA puts out a statement and all the economists rush to see what language they're using, whether it's hawkish or, or dovish, is there technology now that can just do that for you? Look, I think there are, te- you know, you can run a statement through, you know, something and it can tell you what the how the words have changed. You know, the I, I don't use that myself. I mean, I just like read the statement and compare and contrast. And, you know, if you've read, if you read every statement from the RBA, you kind of know when they change things, you know, it comes down. So I'm, I'm old school in that regard. I actually read the statement and don't let the machine tell me uh, what, it, what it means. Um, but, you know, technology more broadly is definitely helping, you know, um, you know, it's easier to get across a lot of information now. You know, you've got all uh, information on markets and news at your fingertips. And in fact, um, hence the signal to the noise challenge becomes even greater. You know, the more information uh, sources of information one can get, the more easily one can get lost in in, in all the different competing viewpoints and data points. Um, so in a way, technology um, sounds good. But, you know, too much noise can get very confusing. Um, but just as a, a practical matter, again, this may sound boring to many of your listeners, but, you know, I have, you know, hundreds of spreadsheets developed over the years covering different markets and, and economies. And a lot of that now is automated. You know, data automatically feeds into the spreadsheets uh, and it automatically updates charts. And so you can really have a, um, like a, a very, you know, breadth of, uh, uh, you know, track a lot of things um, you know, quite, you know, more easily than you used to in the past through through advances in technology. So that's definitely helped me. Um, and that's probably the extent of my technology, to be honest. I think um, you can overuse technology and sometimes it's not as helpful as the headline sounds as well. And, and I also think that there can be too much information and it can be counterproductive to to try and evaluate too much in, in information also. Exactly, exactly. So 
What is your current assessment of, of global and domestic economies and, and where we're heading? I think there's a lot of noise out there. There's obviously a lot of geopolitical tensions, regardless of where you look. This might be a, a, a somewhat long answer. It's a big question, but what, what is your current outlook or assessment? Obviously, the big issue over the past year has been, you know, coming out of COVID, coming out of the lockdowns. Um, you know, again, just to, by by way of history, like COVID came out of nowhere. It, it caused us to have to lock down economies. We had a very sharp uh, collapse in economic activity, very sharp drop in equity markets. Uh, but thereafter, we threw a lot of, you know, money at it, you know, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and we got vaccines a lot quicker than anyone expected, you know, one to two years earlier than the best case scenario. So, Funnily enough, we actually got had a, you know, what we, back in 2020, we were debating whether we'd get a VLW sort of shaped economic recovery. Uh, and it was actually a V-shaped recovery. So we actually got the best case scenario. But the the um, the uh, the downside of that was uh, demand ran ahead of supply uh, and it led to uh, bottlenecks and inflation. And so we've been stuck with, you know, high inflation initially in goods, but then it spilled over to services. And so the big question over the past year has been, can we get inflation back down again without needing to crunch the global economy into a recession? Um, and that's, you know, why markets fell through 2020, and uh, sorry, uh, through last year. Uh, bond yields went up, equities went down. Um, but what I can say is that the, the news over the last six months is actually being very encouraging in the sense that it's looking less and less likely that we will need a recession to get inflation down again. Um, uh, we're seeing um, uh, wage, you know, very tight labour markets around the world. In the US, the unemployment rate's still only 3.5%. Uh, in Australia, 37 But wages growth is coming down um, because uh, we've had a positive supply response in the US. Um, again, part of the labour market tightness in the US was because a lot of workers left the workforce um, and were slow in coming back. Um, also, immigration dried up, so it led, led to a lot of uh, excess demand for labour and high wages growth. But as that supply has come back into the market, um, those job vacancies have uh, have fallen uh, and wages growth have come down. So the, the Fed hasn't needed to crunch the economy into recession to, to bring wages growth down and to bring um, inflation, underlying inflation, uh, down. So that's, you know, fingers crossed is a very encouraging uh, development. Now, what, what that means for markets is that a bit like in 2020, the equity market rallied ahead of um, clear improvement in the economy. And so it did get a little bit overvalued in late 2020. Uh, globally, markets have been rallying since late last year, around about October, they bottomed. Again, ahead of the fundamentals in the sense that they've rallied even with earnings growth still soft, uh, even with interest rates still high. Um, but they're anticipating eventually inflation coming down, central banks cutting interest rates, earnings growth recovering, which I think is more and more likely to happen in 24. So I think markets are going through a bit of a, um, uh, like a equity markets here, uh, like um, just treading water for a while because they're waiting for the fundamentals to catch up. Uh, and I think they, they will gradually, you know, start to catch up. So I'm you know, I was fearing recession six months ago. Uh, I thought the Fed, the US, and again, a lot of again, a lot of my analysis um, is focused on the United States economy. I obviously, look at the Australia, but in terms of the broad direction of uh, bond, you know, interest rates, equity markets. Um, if Wall Street 
you know, sneezes, we catch cold, that old adage. So keeping a very strong focus on what's going on in the US is 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 very important. And um, uh, so, as I said, the, 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 the encouraging developments in the US, um, uh, you know, are good for us. Uh, in, in Australia, you know, inflation's coming down as well, underlying inflation. Um, and all the rate rises that we've had, all the talk of the mortgage cliff, you know, people going from fixed to variable rate mortgages, so far, at least, the economy is holding in. Consumer spending has slowed down, um, but employment growth is still holding up. Um, and, um, you know, the economy sort of, um, you know, as uh, I think former RBA Governor Phil Lowe said, treading the narrow path. We are we are getting through this um, with as, as, uh, without as yet needing a, a, a very hard landing for the economy. I do think that's remarkable because I thought there would be some sort of mortgage cliff. I thought there had to be because I could see what's happening with my own mortgage and um, in a fortunate position that hasn't ruined me, but there'll be a lot of people that really overextended themselves. So I, I don't actually understand how that hasn't slowed retail shopping down. Just on your point, I mean, I think, again, this is a point I've been labouring um, in recent, you know, over the last, um, you know, six months or so that, um, the, the the cruel the cruel aspect of monetary policy in Australia at the moment is that it hits a very narrow slice of households. It hits those particularly overly you know with high mortgages. Um, those without mortgages, you know the 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 um, those without mortgages, um, those well ahead on their mortgage payments, um, you know they are not at, as negatively affected. And so all the analysis. So the issue with, uh, and again, having worked in the media, I know this. If it, there's the old term, if it if it bleeds, it if it bleeds, it leads. So new, good bad news is usually on the front page. You know, worrying news is on the front page, and then it's a, col- a columnist like myself in the in the past on page thirty, let's say, would say, don't get too worried about what you're reading on page one. <laughs> now, so in terms of the mortgage cliff, the reality is is that um, you know thirty percent of Australian households have a mortgage. Of that. Uh, one third uh, uh, have a, a re- mortgage repayments of 30% or more than their income. So they are the most vulnerable to an increase in mortgages. So we're talking about one third of one third. Um, so 10% of households, let's say. Um, and so, and then, yeah, no question, some of those are, are feeling a lot of pain. Uh, but the vast bulk of households, you know, have sort of getting, you know, not being as negatively affected, though they're not on the front page of the paper. Um, but yeah, and and the evidence at the moment is those that are, you know, really feeling it with an increase in the mortgage rate. You know, they're having to tighten their belts. Consumer spending has slowed in Australia. It's slowed to a crawl, actually, uh, on a per capita basis. Real consumer spending has been falling in the last uh, last few quarters. Um, so, um, uh, and that's with, um, you know still reports of people going on European holidays and buying fancy cars. So there's a chunk of households doing very well, thank you very much, but there's a chunk of households that are feeling a lot of pressure. But overall, the net, I guess the net macroeconomic impact, if you like, has been modest slowing in in consumer spending. Um, Yes, but again, it goes back to the, unfortunately, the unfairness, or or I don't know if it's unfair, but the, 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 uh, the uh, the narrow the, you know the the fact that the incidence of policy is being narrow is being borne by a small section of households is the challenge. I was just in Italy for my brother's wedding, and there was certainly no shortage of Australians over there spending plenty of money. So, well, here you go, Tim. So you're struggling with your mortgage, but you still managed to get to Italy for for a <laughs> wedding. So. We made it work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I, yeah, I guess you just got to make it happen, don't you? So, so you think the US is going to avoid recession altogether, or do you think it'll be some sort of soft recession? I mean, so soft landing is, I guess, the term being bandied about at the moment. And what is a soft landing? A soft landing is growth at, 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 say, a trend pace or a little bit below trend, such that the unemployment rate, which is 3.5% today, maybe gradually lifts to, you know, 3.8%, something like that. Um, a recession is the unemployment rate going up 2 or 3%. Um, and so if you get a period of, you know, soft growth, a modest increase in unemployment um, uh, with, uh, without something a lot more uh, deeper, then that, that would be the ideal scenario. And I think, again, central banks around the world, inflation's come down, but it's not been, so, uh, it, it's not, you know, mission accomplished as yet. You know, it's it, 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 it's not mission accomplished. They still need at least, say, six months of subdued consumer spending um, to, to basically reduce pricing power uh, and to bring down uh, to ensure that you know prices don't keep accelerating the way they have in the last couple of years. And I'm probably going to make myself sound silly here trying to recall my economics, but is it the Laffer curve that's the inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation? Phillips curve, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Phillips curve. So, um, and, you know, that has been uh, shifting. You know, so we're seeing in Australia, for example, you know, lower rates of wage inflation uh, at today's low level of unemployment. So uh, wage inflation in Australia is running at just under 4% uh, with with the unemployment rate at the lowest level in 50 years. Um, so if we had a 3.5% unemployment rate 10 years ago, the, the evidence would have been that wages growth would be a lot, lot stronger than it is at the moment. So, you know, some people look at that, you know, the, you know, the, you know, uh, working, you know, unions, for example, would say, you know, workers have lost bargaining power. It's, it's terrible. Um, the income's going to corporations, all that. Now, okay, that there may be an element to that, but the, 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 the benefit of, of, um, a very, you know, open competitive labour market is that we have been able to push the unemployment rate a lot lower than we've ever had it in 50 years. So by having relatively benign wages growth um, uh, so that it doesn't upset the inflation outlook, we've been able to employ, you know, a lot more people than we've uh, otherwise been able to employ. So, you know, it cuts both ways in, in a sense. So do you think we can have it both ways, the best of both worlds? And, and is the Phillips curve broken? Is it no no longer relevant? I don't think it's broke. Well, again, it it, it it's what's happened. I think it, it hasn't broken, but the the I guess the degree of wage inflation you get for a given level of unemployment uh, has certainly fallen over time, uh, and I think that reflects two things. Firstly, people's inflation expectations have have come down, and that's why central banks are so keen to not let inflation stay too high for too long because. Um, if if workers, for example, expect inflation to be eight percent a year, they're more likely to insist on wage inflation of of a price gain, a wage gain of, you know, five to eight percent, and that then entrenches inflation. And so, what we've seen over the last twenty years is inflation expectations have come down as inflation itself has come down, and so as a result, you know, workers haven't felt the need to demand, you know, bigger wage increases than, say, 3 to 4%. Um, the second thing that's happened is just, you know, globalisation, um, you know, uh, um, the opening up of um, 
uh, you know, ability to shift uh, production to, you know, low cost emerging markets. And that's put a lot of pressure, of course, on and certainly lower skilled jobs uh, in Australia. Um, and technology, tech disruption, you know, finding, you know, ways to replace labour with uh, with machines and with uh, computers and, and whatnot. So that's put, put a lot of pressure on. Um, but again, I go back to the point that um, uh, the relative, I guess, cheapness of labour has the benefit of it is um, despite all the technology, despite all the globalisation that people harp on about, we have an unemployment rate in Australia at 50-year lows. The percent of working age Australians in a job uh, is at record highs. Uh, now, some will say the quality of some of the jobs is not great, and uh, 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 you know people are working part time; they want to be working full time. But look, in the main, the labour market has never been stronger or healthier in in living memory. You mentioned two things there. So, technology was one, and disruption is a theme that I love talking about. Within our own client base, I've certainly seen instances of what they might work in steel fabrication and just spend a million bucks on a machine to automate something that can work for 24 hours and replace kind of five to 10 people. Seeing that on a micro scale, are you seeing that start to reduce cost and and bring inflation down? And if we haven't yet, do you think we will? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, the, 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 um, yeah, I mean, the, the history of, you know, capital development, capitalist development is, is productivity improvement um, and which keeps downward pressure on prices. I mean, um, uh, you know, we've had upsurges in inflation historically, but it's usually been due to, you know, things like, you know, massive disruptions like um, wars and, and more recently COVID. But otherwise, um, you know, just the ability to 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 invent ways of doing the same thing but more cheaply is what drives um, uh, what drives drives markets. Um, uh, but again, this is nothing new. As I said, like we've had massive technology disruption now. You know, you think of the iPhone, think of the internet. Um, uh, robotics is coming. Artificial intelligence is coming, but. You know, people have been saying for decades that this is going to lead to mass unemployment, and uh, it never has. We've always managed to find other ways to employ ourselves uh, and or work a bit less. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we all could just work four days a week or three days a week, you know, ultimately, um, uh, which is partly the way in which the benefits of productivity, you know, can be shared is that we can work a, a little bit less. I mean, I think COVID, for example, I don't think it's far away where people will be working four days a week. You know, they've gotten used to um, working from home and, and getting by and um, uh, that could be, you know, a new new development to watch on the, on the horizon. And I'm all for it because it's just, it's a way of sharing the benefits of productivity growth. If um, Particularly if you can get the same income and, but, but work a bit less. Um, um, yeah. So you get, you, know, you bet productivity can cut two ways. You can get more income, higher real income, for the same amount of hours working or the same income for less hours. So, you know, over time we've we've about, we've got a bit of both, but we've typically got more real income than less uh, than less uh, working hours. But uh, maybe going forward that could shift. It's an interesting point. I guess the, the five-day work week really is just a social construct, isn't it? There's no hard and fast rule or science behind why we work five days and rest two. Well, it used to be seven, you know. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think, the you know, it used to be uh, – Going back to industrialization when people left the farms and and started working in the factories, um, 
in the 18th century, you know, back in those days, people would work every day, you know, and work, uh, you know, 12-hour days. So we've gone progressively over time, you know, we've gone from seven days, 12 hours a week, uh, hours a day to, you know, now five days and, um, and um, you know, whatever, eight eight hours a day uh, or, or a bit less. So um, that's been the, that's been the trend. And what about net migration in, into Australia? I know you tend to focus more on the US, but do, do you think that that should bring down or put less pressure on the employment market? I know a lot of clients have a lot of trouble hiring skilled labour or unskilled labour for that matter. Is that going to get better with migration? Yeah, I mean, look, immigration, you know, immigrants are pouring into Australia at the moment. I mean, the annual rate of immigration is running at, you know, 400,000 or something like that, like twice the normal rate. Um, And that's because we had, a, I guess, a uh, you know, a couple of years there where we had no immigration or very little immigration, uh, people were still getting immigration uh, visas. Um, and now we've got this backlog of, of people with visas wanting to finally get back into the country now that it's reopened. So we're going through at the moment a bit of a uh, a catch up, if you like, of, of immigration from the couple of years of, of very low immigration. Um, so it's running at a very strong pace. And I think going forward, it'll settle back down to the sort of pace that we had prior to COVID, you know, i.e. around about, you know, I think it's around about 200,000 a year or 150, 200,000, uh, you know, uh, immigrants a year, so, which has been underpinning, you know, pe- uh, uh, far, you know, the agricultural uh, workers, um, people, you know, in the, re- uh, the, the leisure, the sort of recreation areas, but also skilled workers in offices and factories and whatnot. So, so, but immigration, generally speaking, from an economic point of view, in terms of the demand and inflation, cuts two ways because obviously it adds to labour supply. So, to the extent there are vacancies to be filled, um, if there are you know immigrants who can fill those jobs, work businesses don't need to compete against each other and jack up wages um, uh, to to fill those jobs. So it does put downward pressure on wages. All else constant, I think that you know that. That is just, you know, that direct effect is is true. Um, but it does add to demand at the same time. So, um, you know, they, there's more mouths to feed. Uh, so it underpins consumer spending. It underpins housing construction. Um, so it can, it cuts both way, uh, two ways in terms of the overall impact on demand uh, in the economy. Unfortunately, they, you know, it, it, they add to the labour supply, but they don't add to the housing supply. So we're seeing, you know, obviously demand for housing, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, being um, augmented by the, the the influx of immigration, um, which is adding, which has helped the labor, the housing market uh, in terms of prices rebound a lot faster than anyone I think expected a year ago. You know, house prices nationally fell 10% uh, last year. They're almost back. To, they've almost fully recouped those losses. Do you have a view on housing, particularly on the the east coast? Sydney, as, a, as an example, has had a huge run up over the last two decades. Is it just taking a breath, or do you think it's got another leg up in it? And then Queensland, in particular, I, I, I think I'm excited about with the run up into the Olympics and all the infrastructure coming in. Is that something that you look at, or is that getting too great? Yeah, now? yeah, yeah. I mean, I look. Sydney's always going to be you know, the gateway into Australia for, for immigration, you know, Melbourne to some extent as well. Sydney's particularly supply constrained as well, right, because you can't build beyond Bondi, right, because there's water. Uh, and then beyond uh, going out the west, you've got the, you know, the the the, the mountains. And so we've sort of got a land constraints. 
uh, and then we've got development constraints in how high we can build. So, you know, Sydney uh, suffers from, you know, basically supply restrictions, which is always going to keep prices high um, relative to income. Um, And, you know, I think many, many, again, it's many... um, uh, international investors have looked at Australia and looked at the level of house prices relative to income over the last couple of decades and said, that must be a bubble. That looks like a bubble to me because prices are so high relative to anything else I've seen in the world. It's got to be a bubble. And that means that the economy is going to bust and banks are going to implode. Um, and they've shorted Australian banks and they've, uh, they've always lost money because uh, the reality is House prices are structurally high in Australia, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, um, because of the scarcity of um, ability to add to supply uh, very well. Uh, and, and and they're always going to stay that high as a result. We'll go through cycles. So I said house prices in Sydney went down 10% last year, but now they've almost fully bounced back. What is interesting at the moment, though, is um, – and, you know, and when, and when you do get, as you mentioned, Queensland, you get periods where – you know, Sydney and maybe Melbourne get out of kilter with some of the other states and therefore you get people moving, you know, from Sydney to, you know, Adelaide or or Perth or particularly Brisbane uh, and investors move as well. So there's a, when, when relative prices get out of kilter, there is a sort of equilibrating mechanism, if you like, of, of people um, moving and investors moving their money to sort of re-equilibrate things. But uh, Sydney's always going to be much more expensive than Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth. Um, and Melbourne, I think, is going to become increasingly on a par with um, with with, Mel- uh, with Sydney. Melbourne used to be cheaper than Sydney for a long time, but I think that, that discount has, uh, has evaporated over recent years. Uh, because immigration into Melbourne's uh, picked up in a major way as well. BetaShares has a number of thematic ETFs, and I think they do a publication every year, big themes. Is, is that something that you pay attention to? Is there, are there any thematics that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, we put out pieces on, you know, thematic uh, ideas. So what's it, what a thematic is, um, a thematic is is a, like an area of the, the economy um, that we think is going to be able to have above average, you know, return potential through multiple cycles. Um, uh, for example, cybersecurity, you know, we know demand for cybersecurity is, is just uh, growing by leaps and bounds as we try to keep ahead of the, the cyber criminals out there. Um, we know, you know, clean energy is is uh, so. This is an area that, as a share of the economy, if you like, spending in this area as a share of the economy will grow, and that's why you know companies in that area are likely to have above average uh, performance. And so, what we do as an ETF provider, again, we don't try to pick individual stocks, but what we'll do is we'll identify the leading companies in a certain thematic, uh, and then wrap an ETF around it, and we'll say, you know, that's our way to get the exposure to that theme. So, a certain theme like cybersecurity, clean energy, uh, we've got one robotics and artificial intelligence is is another one. Um, so, uh, uh, healthcare, even so, uh, something as simple as healthcare, uh, because we know spending on healthcare as a share of uh, developed economies is growing through population aging, through technological advances. Um, so, yeah, they, that's what I what we mean by thematics. Um, and again, they will have short run cycles, but over the long, on a five to ten year view. Um, I, I, the I, the idea behind those is on a, on a five to ten year view, they should show you um, 
you know, pretty good performance relative to the the, the broader global market. Well, we did broadly touch on this, but just confirming my understanding. So fiscal policy around the world, do you think we have reached peak inflation and close to peak rates, or do you think there could be risk for shocks? Look, I think we're close to done in terms of monitor. So when you think of it, so going back to COVID, basically what happened in COVID is that we thought we were going to have a very deep recession. We thought consumers weren't going to spend when they came out of the lockdowns. We thought we might have repeat um, COVID breakouts without any vaccines. And so central banks slashed rates to zero uh, and governments spent money like drunken sailors. Now, uh, in the last few years, central banks have put interest rates back up again. And so all that monetary stimulus has been unwound. Um, and in fact, rates are now above average. So they've actually gone beyond, you know, not mere. But fiscal policy, central governments, the, the problem with politicians, of course, is that they it's, it's easy to spend money um, in a time of a crisis. It's not so easy to cut back when the crisis is averted. Uh, and that's what we've seen. Fiscal policy generally around the world uh, has not tightened up to a significant degree. Um, and so all of the burden of, of slowing the economy and bringing down inflation uh, has been borne by central banks. And that's why interest rates are, are probably higher than, uh, you know, uh, above average. You know, the long run average cash rate in Australia is probably going to be two and a half, three percent. At the moment, it's four. Uh, in the US, it's five and a half. So they've gone above their average levels. Um, but but uh, so in terms of fiscal policy, look, I don't. There's no appetite to like really tighten things uh, at all. Um, so the burden has been borne by monetary policy. Uh, but on that, you know, the infl- as I said the inflation numbers are encouraging. Uh, I think central banks don't feel the need to now push economies into recession uh, to get inflation down. Uh, and I think we're close to the end of 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 uh, of, ra- of you know central banks raising rates. So the RBA may raise rates once more. I think there's a, a, a you know a, some probability that they may actually go again in November. Uh, it's not my base case, but um, you know I'd attach maybe a thirty to forty percent chance of it at the moment. Uh, and similarly in the US, there's some chance that they go once more, but in the main they're, they're close to done. You know if if, if there's a to use a, a, a baseball analogy, I'm not sure if many people follow baseball, but we're probably in the seventh to eighth innings of the monetary policy tightening um, cycle, uh, if not in the ninth innings. The market's been selling off of late in the last kind of three, three-ish weeks, mainly not around geopolitical tension, but seems to be if you have to put your finger on what it might be is the long end of the rate curve is moving up. Can you comment on why that's happening, um, your views on whether it will reverse or not and what we can look for for equities to precede that trend upwards? Going back to what I was saying earlier, equity markets have been rallying, broadly speaking, since last October um, in advance of any decline in bond yields. Um, Bond yields did sort of Drop for a while. I mean, I think in the US they got down to three and a half percent ten-year bond yield um, from over four, but now they're back almost fives. So they've had a pretty big rebound, um, but the markets were vulnerable because their valuations had gotten uh, fairly stretched. The US market was trading at twenty times earnings, uh, the so-called equity risk premium. Uh, so the earnings yield of the market less the bond yield got down to one percent in the US. So it's the tightest um, that we've seen since 07. So the market was vulnerable. 
Uh, and it turned out that bond yields not only didn't drop, but they actually started rising. So that's why the markets have pulled back uh, in recent weeks. Now, why have bond yields ro- uh, increased? Um, look, there's a lot of complicated theories about it, but I, I, my simplistic framework is that markets were pricing in central banks cutting interest rates as early as the first half of next year because the bond market was fearing a, a, a growth slowdown, if not recession. Now, as those recession fears have abated, um, markets have priced out the risk of rate cuts. They've delayed when they think central banks will raise rates. And they've priced in some risk that we may actually get one, uh, at least one more rate increase. And so that has caused, um, you know, bond yields to move move somewhat higher. Now, there's a... Um, there's another. There's another. So that is in the main. Now there's another. The the sort of the risk premium on long holding long term bonds, like because of the volatility of their value, uh, has gone up as well. Um, but I think that is more of a short run um, uh, uh, driver. But I, I think the sell off in bond yields is you know pro- is is overdone because I you know I don't see central banks you know I think ultimately central banks are going to be moving to cut interest rates. Um, I've been surprised by the, the 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 severity of the bond sell-off in the last few weeks, uh, because you know the inflation numbers have been okay. I think the other factor that's gone on, of course, is that oil prices have bounced back, um, which is going to see headline inflation pick up at least in the next few months, which leads to nervousness about you know what that what central banks may do on on that front. So, we'll see what happens with oil prices. Obviously, if um, you know, we haven't mentioned the um, obviously the, uh, the 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 Middle East tensions that have uh, picked up. The big concern there is if Iran gets caught up in in this, and the, there are new sanctions imposed on Iran exports of oil, it will make the, the oil market globally even tighter than it is already. Um, given OPEC cut production six months ago, and that could see oil prices go a lot, you know, move higher, but say back over $100 a barrel. So markets are watching that as well. Um, but again, bigger picture, I think uh, I, I go back to what I said before. I think central banks are close to the end in terms of raising rates. Underlying inflation is still coming down. Um, and, you know, central banks may well end up cutting rates, if not the first half probably the second half of next year, um, and we can avoid recession. And so equity markets are going through a, a consolidation uh, period here. Uh, but the longer term you know, outlook, I think, is, is still pretty encouraging. You mentioned a few risks there. Are there any other key risks you think that we should be keeping an eye on from an equity investor's perspective? Yeah, so obviously the key risk that inflation doesn't fall as quickly uh, as we as we hope, or it, it stops falling, or in fact bounces back, and so then central banks have to get aggressive, and the fear of recession comes back. That is risk, you know, numero uno, is that inflation doesn't continue on its downward uh, decline. Um, oil prices, as I mentioned. Now the other one we haven't mentioned, of course, is China. Um, China's going through a major property. Uh, adjustment at the moment. It it, it it basically created a bubble in, in high-rise apartment construction uh, for many years, uh, and uh, it's dealing with the aftermath of that at the moment. Um, but I and so that slowed Chinese growth. Um, but but you know at the end of the day, I think the Chinese, if push comes to shove, don't want the economy to slow too sharply because it could lead to you know social unrest and threaten the 
the, the jobs of the you know the Communist Party uh, members that run the country. Um, so if push comes to shove, they will provide stimulus and keep that economy ticking over. But that's obviously um, another risk to 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 watch out for the an, an undue slowdown in the Chinese economy. I subscribe to that view too. It is it is kind of polarizing when I speak to market commentators whether or not they think China will step in. But I, I see that as an opportunity. I, I think if it's, if China slows too much, they will step in and it'll end up being a net positive for markets. So interesting to hear your view. This is a question I get relatively frequently, and I don't know if I've ever answered it very well, so I'll see how, how you can go with it. The US debt ceiling, they've got an extraordinary amount. It's an unprecedented amount of, of debt on their books, and it's a huge machine with a lot of moving parts, but it's really hard to get your head around how they'll ever pay that down, or, or a lot of people say they can just keep kicking the can down the road forever and it's not an issue and the economy will just outgrow it. Do you see it as a risk? Do you think we'll get to a point in the next 10, 20 years where we have a huge blow up with that debt ceiling? And how do you explain that? There's a few things there. So the debt ceiling, the debt ceiling was actually a law put in place years ago to try to limit the growth of debt. In theory, the debt ceiling, uh, the law was that if we hit this debt ceiling, we have to have unilateral cutbacks in 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 um in spending. You know, cutting back in Medicare, cutting back on, um, you know, a whole bunch of things. You know, very painful, difficult cuts. So that was in theory the way to deal with the debt uh, problem. Problem is, is that uh, when the debt ceiling, when you hit the debt ceiling, no one wants to do that. And then they have a, a an argy bargy about um raising the debt ceiling, and so they have some protracted negotiations to have a few piecemeal cuts here and then, here and there so that Congress can agree to raise the debt ceiling. So in a way, um, the, what we're hearing about, you know, the, the standoff in Washington is actually debating what needs to be done so that they can all raise the debt ceiling. They all agree they want to raise the debt ceiling. Um, so that's the stupidity of it. They put in place this thing to constrain the growth of debt, but then when that constraint becomes imposing, they basically have to come up with a way to to avoid that constraint. Um, and so debt keeps rising. Now, look, what look the long-term fiscal projections for the US uh, are, are, you know are bad. You know, debt net debt as a share of GDP, you know, keep, keeps rising 150, um, you know, potentially even 200 percent over the next um, uh, few decades. And the fundamental problem in 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 um, in the US is that um, look, they're pretty miserly in terms of their welfare spending and whatnot. They do provide, you know, uh, welfare spending, but they're very low in their taxation. So even so, they basically don't tax enough uh, to 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 fund the the spending that they want. And so they're just constantly stuck in this, um, uh, uh, you know, deficit situation. And even I mean, the thing is today, the US has got a large budget deficit, even with unemployment at record lows. And so you know, imagine how bad it would be were in recession, you know, where the unemployment uh, dried up and un uh, unemployment benefits went up. So it's got a massive structural deficit problem. Now, I look at it two ways. Another way to think about it is the US has been allowed to run, run up debt because there's uh, um, investors around the world have not penalised them because end of the day, the US is still the reserve, you know, the US dollar is the reserve currency that it's used as a means of uh, international payments. Uh, it's used as a source of investment. Um, people buy, you know, every central bank in the world, every pension fund in the world has a big chunk of treasuries, US debt. Um, that's the sort of um, the, 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 the 
the ballast in their in people's portfolios, um, and they are still buying bonds. You know, if 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 the world decided, you know, we've had too much uh, U.S. debt. Um, there's a buyer strike and in, interest rates go up, say interest rates go up 8 10%, then they would be forced to do something. But, you know, until that day happens, they won't be. So, again, the other, uh, you know, politicians often need a crisis to force them to do something. And so, unfortunately, it will take a crisis to solve the debt problem if, if, if that were to you know, happen. Presumably, that would cause a lot of pain, I would imagine a lot worse than what we're seeing at the moment or we've seen in the last kind of couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, when when and if the day comes, then that will be, a, you know, a massive crunch. I mean, the way it will, will manifest itself is that, and maybe we're seeing it today, you know, 10-year bond yields in the US, as you pointed out earlier, have been going up in the last few weeks. Um, uh, even overnight went up, uh, you know, uh, whether, again, at the time we're doing this podcast, around about 4.9%. Uh, potentially going up over five percent, and so, you know, if they keep going higher, and uh, and we're seeing that global investors just don't want to own U.S. Treasuries, then that's going to become, you know, quite problematic. Um, but again, look at Washington. I mean, how the it's such a fragmented uh, political uh, situation there. I, I just don't know. I don't have a lot of confidence that I'll ultimately ever come to a, a, a sort of budget-busting set of uh, set of um, uh, uh, policies because the, they're so the Democrats and the Republicans are so diametrically opposed to you know what what they want to do. Um, yeah, so we all we can do is just hope that day doesn't arrive. I know it's not a good answer, but um, uh, again, it will take the markets to force politicians to do. It will take a crisis to deal with it. Unfortunately, they're not going to deal with it on their own. Rewinding kind of a year and a half, when our own just after I think it was January last year, our own central bank came came out and said that uh, rates are going to be on hold for twelve months, and that was wrong. A month later, that was around the same time that there was a lot of rhetoric saying that the US wouldn't put up rates either because it would ruin the government debt position and the, the debt repayments would become untenable. Obviously, that wasn't taken into account at all. Central bank didn't take in that into account; otherwise, it wouldn't have risen rates. Do you think there will be a point where the central bank would actually take that into account and say, well, 7%, that's really going to cause the government some issue? Or is it that not their job? Look, it's not their job. I mean, I think the way it comes, way way it influences, if central banks thought that, um, like, for example, at the moment, bond yields in the US are going higher. Um, so, and that's caused the equity market to have a bit of a correction. Um, a mortgage, a 30-year mortgage rate in the US at the moment is 8%. So if you wanted to, t- you know, if you wanted to take out a thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage in the US today, you'd have to agree to an eight percent yield for the next thirty years. So the m- housing market is, you know, the turnover in the existing housing market is 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 very very low. Um, but but going back to your point, basically the way central banks think about it is if 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 the increase in bond yields is such that it's going to unduly slow the economy then that will influence their thinking. But they won't step up to just help the government out. You know, it's not, you know, uh, that that's not the way it works. If they think that the, the funding challenges that governments are facing are causing higher bond yields, which are going to slow the economy um, unless we help and, and slow the economy the more than we would like, then we have to offset that by lowering interest rates a bit. So that's sort of the way it would work. Um, it's a bit nuanced, but uh, yeah, they don't necessarily. And again, just to, 
on that, I mean, it's a very interesting point because the diff, the the this is where independence of central banks is so critical. So if you look at a country like Argentina, for example, you know, uh, turn of the last century, one of the richest economies in the world, um, it started to uh, get lazy in terms of running large budget deficits. Uh, the central bank was basically cajoled into printing money to fund those deficits, uh, and it got stuck with a you know high inflation ever since. Um, central banks only briefly during COVID admitted they they were going to monetize the debt, like print money to, to to finance the debt. But nowadays that that's not happening. So the the to the extent governments raise debt, they have to go and borrow that money in markets. And if the markets demand a high interest rate, they'll have to pay that high interest rate. The, the central banks in either Australia or the US are there at the printing press, you know, printing money uh, to, to fund the deficit, uh, which means that it doesn't have that flow on effect to inflation. Um, that would be the case, uh, as we've seen in countries like Argentina, Zimbabwe and other, you know, as soon as you have governments spending money on on a lot of stuff and, and central banks basically being you know, in the pockets of the politicians and printing money to fund that, you, you, you create hyperinflation, you create inflation. Um, thankfully, at least, um, that is not the case, um, uh, you know, in, 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 in the Western world at the moment. Interesting you, you mentioned that um, one of the questions I was going to have was around cryptocurrency. And I know in countries like um, Zimbabwe and some other South American countries where you do have hyperinflation, they've actually been forced into using Bitcoin as a mean, means of exchange or store of value because um, it's going to be less volatile than their own currency. Do you have a view on, on crypto at all when you take into it, when you look at macroeconomics? I guess I'm an old, you know, maybe I'm too old, I don't know, but I'm, I, I'm, we have a, look, we have a crypto fund, a, 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 a crypt ETF. Uh, there's moves afoot in the US to have a Bitcoin uh, ETF. And if it was, you know, regulations would allow it, um, you know, as a company, we may well uh, offer a Bitcoin uh, ETF uh, at some point. So I'm definitely open to it as an investment vehicle. I mean, I, I'm agnostic in the sense that if people want to, if they see it as a me as a as a worthy investment, you know, as a company, I guess you know we would offer that that uh, that uh, that exposure if it's a legitimate legal way of investing, uh, and people want to invest in it. Great, and we will offer stuff. Now, me personally, do I think crypto is is the solution to everything? Uh, I'm I'm still dubious. So I think that the the use case for Bitcoin um, uh, is still highly questionable. Um, it's a little bit like baseball cards to me, or you know, sort of trading. <laughs> so, I, I, yes, I mean, as a means of exchange, I mean, I think you know, we have digital, you know, we have current fiat currencies, which are, which are quite good in facilitating exchange as the store of value. I mean, I don't know, the price of Bitcoin is so volatile. Um, I'm not sure if it's a, a, that a greater store of value. The other thing to be wary of is of the crypto space, of course, is that if, uh, as we saw, you know, the, what undid the, what un, undoes speculative um, uh, manias, if you like, is supply. And so when, uh, when we had the dot-com bubble 20 years ago and, and uh, internet companies became, you know, grossly overvalued, uh, we had, a, a, you know, many, many IPOs of, of uh, you know, dubious tech companies, particularly in the US, and that influx of supply ultimately caused the market to implode. What, and what we've seen with crypto is that 
um, you know, a lot of other coins being developed. You know, a few years ago there was dog coin and this coin and that coin or whatever. And so once we get like an influx of a huge amount of different coins all competing to be like a Bitcoin, then that can lead to some some problems as well. So I'm open minded. Uh, I, I personally am a little bit um, skeptical about that 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 area, um, but I definitely you know it's a bit like gold. People love gold. Um, people love um, you know. All, all, uh, art, you know, collecting art, um, collecting wine, you know. So I, I put it in that sort of category. If you, um, uh, yeah, I personally am dubious, but uh, but I d- don't deny that uh, I, I'm not an expert in this area, and and it may well, you know, prove to be you know a, a worthy investment. Speaking of polarizing, that's probably the most polarizing when it comes to viewpoints. Oh, it's very diplomatic in my answer there. <laughs> <laughs> like wine, I I, um, I try to collect wine, but I end up drinking it too too quickly. I think. <laughs> but, um, so back to normal currencies. Um, so the the yen. There's been a bit of weakness in the yen recently. Do you see this normalising over the? course of the cycle or do you have a view on what's happening in japan at the moment at the moment what's happening is the u.s economy is strong you know stronger than than most uh central bank there has re- re- increased rates more than you know so the rba the central bank in the japan, uh, u.s has raised rates to five and a half percent in japan they have not budged so interest rates there are still zero um and so the interest differential is certainly favoring the u.s dollar over the yen um, which is something the Japanese like. Actually, they like a, a weak yen because it helps their exporters. Um, but it, it, but basically, the US dollar is strong around the world. So most currencies are, are weak against the US dollar. So the yen looks weak against the US dollar. Aussie dollar looks weak against the US dollar. You know, we're down at 63-odd cents, euro as well. So in the main, this is a, a strong US dollar story rather than a weak yen or weak Aussie dollar story. Um, but... I guess the other interesting aspect about Japan is it actually has been showing some pretty good outperformance uh, in terms of the equity market uh, uh, in recent months. Um, well, weak yen helps. Every time the yen is weak, um, it tends to help the relative performance of the Japanese market, which is why we we actually have a hedge Japanese ETF just by the buy. So we, we take out the currency hedge. Uh, we take out the currency risk because usually when Japanese market's doing well, the yen's not doing well. So you don't want to have yen exposure as well. You want to have hedged exposure. Um, but the other thing going on in Japan is um, so-called uh, improvements in shareholder returns. Uh, businesses are under growing pressure to improve shareholder returns, i.e. reduce uh, cash sitting on balance sheets, uh, reduce lazy investments in, in connected companies, um, and uh, you know improve shareholder returns. And we're seeing uh, corporate earnings in the US or in, in Japan, earnings per share in Japan uh, actually grow pretty nicely of late. Uh, even though the economy overall is still pretty soft. Uh, and and also, of course, valuations in Japan uh, relative to the US uh, are looking, uh, have looked cheap for a while, but they are, you know, more and more attracting attracting investors given the improvements in corporate earnings. So Japan, you know, is actually a very interesting um, uh, investment uh, uh, opportunity at the moment. So it's still pretty positive even in light of the recent outperformance? Yeah, I mean, again, if they, if the, if the Japanese companies are true to their word and they they keep, you know, uh, boosting uh, earning earnings per share, then, uh, uh, you know, I think, and, and given the relative cheapness of the market compared to say uh, the US, um, 
you know, Warren Buffett, for example, is in, you know increasingly investing in Japan. So I, I think that's part of the reason we're seeing you know renewed interest in Japan because they say, oh, if Warren Buffett thinks it's good value, then um, maybe maybe there is some value there. Yeah. So I think there's a, it's a story that has some legs this time. Yeah. Do you think uh, this is a, a kind of long term question? So as we transition to clean energy and, and away from fossil fuels. What do you think the outlook for commodity prices is in the long run? So if we take a 10, 20 year view plus. Firstly, from an overall commodity complex point of view, I think the outlook is is flat to down in a way. Like, uh, and, and why is that? Because if you look at the history of commodity booms um, over the past 100 years or so, it's usually when a region of the world, a very important region of the world, goes through an industrialization phase, um, be it America in the late 1800s, um, you know, Japan and Germany post-World War II, uh, Japan, uh, South Korea. Uh, and then, of course, in the last decade, uh, two decades, uh, China. Um, and we had a commodity boom from around about 2000 to 2013. So just over a decade of booming commodity prices. Uh, but Japan's growth is slowing down and there's no one really to take their place. Um, India's uh, growing, but I don't think it's demand for commodities is going to be anywhere near what China's was. And so that is the overarching driver of commodity prices, is is there a major new source of demand for commodities? And I don't think there is. Um, Now, within that, of course, um, demand for um, uh, commodities that you need to, to, you know, build um, uh, windmills, uh, to build solar uh, uh, panels, um, the, to, to, to basically build the, the, the new energy uh, systems of the future uh, are going to go up so, and you get batteries. So you're seeing things like um, uh, lithium and, um, and, and whatnot go up. So I think within the commodity market itself, there will be a transition from maybe, you know, old commodities to new commodities. Um, and so that's an interesting, you know, investment opportunity. Again, in a way, it's a it's a thematic Um we have a again, you know, not to plug beta shares too much, but you know, again, we we have identified that as a thematic. We do have a a future metals type of ETF that gives you exposure to what we think are going to be uh, in relatively good demand over the next few years as part of the clean energy transition. Uh, but overall, uh, what we've seen in the past decade has been flat to down commodity prices as China's growth has slowed down uh, and technology. Uh, and the U.S. market in particular do very well. So the U.S. market technology has outperformed uh, commodities and Australia has underperformed. Uh, and, you know, going forward, I think that's more likely to be the situation going forward is that we're going to be in a still a, a tech a tech disruptive type world. So anything that's um, techy and, and innovative and growth orientated will do well over, say, the more of the more traditional commodity producers. Um, hence, you know, why it's probably even more imperative, you know, Australian investors to think about, you know, global global exposures um, because our market overall may continue to um, to lag uh, somewhat. Do you have any final message for the listeners, bearing in mind most of them are investors, have exposure to the markets? Any message? Should they be panicking? Should they stay calm? 10-year outlooks pretty good or a bit, bit to worry about? What's your final message? Uh, I, I think... In the you know stay calm, make sure your asset allocate. You know basically you know 
if you're uncomfortable uh, with markets, you know, on an on a nightly basis, then your asset allocation isn't right. You know, that that's the bottom line. Like have an asset allocation, a blend of equities, bonds, and cash, um, so that's suitable to your you know longer term time frame. And if that's right, you know, markets will do what markets do in the short run. Um, but um, you know, in the long run, we know that they you know they um, uh, equities trend up in the long run and um, uh, and and bonds, you know, deliver good returns as well. Um, but again, but, but I, I guess the other point is that I'm I am don't underestimate the you know tech dis- the 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 positives that are going on in the global economy. You know, technology uh, is advancing in leaps and bounds. Um, um, uh, I think you know the world is becoming a you know it's still a, a good place to invest. I still see a lot of investment uh, potential out there uh, rather than. Um, you know, things to worry about. I, I see more encouraging signs and worrying signs, certainly on a five to 10 year view. No, I completely agree. I think in any time period, if you're taking a five to 10 year view, then you don't have anything to worry about. But if you are watching markets nightly, you may as well flip a coin as to what's going to be the outcome for tomorrow. But no, really appreciate your time today. It's been an absolute honor to speak to you and and share your wisdom and I'm sure the listeners will, will get a lot out of it. So thank you very much. If anyone would like to talk about any of the BD Shares products with us, please don't hesitate to reach out and we can either put you in touch with the team or go through it with you. So thank you. Bye for now.